welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, good morning. Would you stand one more time for our scripture reading? It's from Colossians 3, 1 to 14, and it's on page 1184 in the church um, Bibles. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator." Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, close yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The little heading over this section of scripture in my Bible reads, living as those made alive in Christ or living the new life. These verses aren't about an intellectual ascent, but are about real living, living in the reality of the kingdom, living out the reality of the kingdom. It starts with our truest identity as beloved children, hidden in Christ with God. The old self has died, the new self has risen with Christ, so we don't have to be chained to the old things that bind us. We can change. All the things Mike talked about last week can be our reality. And we both individually and as a church can learn to live in this new reality, this new life, setting our hearts and minds on things above, seeing everything in life as God sees it, living our lives as Jesus would if he were in our shoes. Pretty cool stuff. I love playing in this land of new life set forth in verses 1 through 4, and then jumping right into verse 12 and forward. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Who wouldn't want to live in a land where compassion reigns, forgiveness is the rule, and love binds it all together in perfect unity? This is a gorgeous picture of people living out the kingdom. But the Apostle Paul doesn't jump 
from our identity in Christ in the first four verses to living out this identity with each other and the world. He first takes us face to face in verses 5 through 11 with our struggles, our sin. This is a land less fun to play in. Put to death, kill off, therefore. And then there's the list. I'm a shame-based person. I have grown so much in my belief and experience of being God's beloved, of discovering a God that is so filled with love for me and the world, so good that living in a state of fear and debilitating shame was never part of the plan. But those tendrils of shame run deep. And from talking to some of you and hearing some of your stories, I know I'm not alone here. Yet I have chosen today to lean into these verses of sin, particularly because I have come to believe that it is only in recognizing, bringing to the light of God's love, and in many cases, speaking aloud these struggles and sins that bind us, that we can truly find freedom to live into and live out of our identity in Christ. So today, I'm going to give the message I never expected to give. I'm going to lean into a subject I have long found uncomfortable. Today, we are going to talk about confession. Welcome team, this would be a good time for you to hand out the lyrics as the band takes their places. Today, I'm going to ask us to be brave because perhaps the reason that we try with all our might to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience and feel like we're constantly failing is because some of these sins These struggles kept in the dark hold us captive. We long to put them to death, but don't know how. And my premise today, the whole reason I chose the song Brave by Sarah Bareilles is because I wonder if confession could be one of the pieces missing in our spiritual journey. It is said that confession is good for the soul. But let's be honest, it can be terrifying. So today, I want to see us be brave.
thank you. Sarah Bareilles has nothing on Elizabeth, really. You know, the words of this song are powerful. I'm fairly certain Bareilles was not thinking of sins that bind us when she wrote this song. Yet it has much spiritual truth in it. She says, kept on the inside and no sunlight. Sometimes a shadow wins. What happens to you when you hear the word confession? For many of us, sunlight and freedom are not the first words we connect with confession. We might have some baggage here, either with the idea of going to clergy for confession or of sharing our inner struggle with someone and having it thrown back at us, sending you further into the shadows. So I want to step carefully here. And before we go any further, I just want to stop and pray. So will you pray with me? God of light, who commanded us to be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Today we are going into the uncomfortable. Will you guide us? Illuminate the darkness and fill us with your presence in your great mercy. Be our strength, our healer, our hope. Amen. So here we go. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. What's not to love in this list? Especially when I read it in a version like the message where evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, is fleshed out as doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That hits close to home. But it gets worse when we come face to face with, those, what, with what are shut down words for me. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Wrath doesn't exactly inspire a desire for confession in me. How can we honestly come to God with our struggles if we're afraid of being zapped by his wrath? Or perhaps we only come to God because we're afraid of his wrath, which doesn't do much to help us live into our identity as his beloved. So what do we do with that? James Bryant Smith, when writing about this passage, says, we use the word wrath to describe intense anger. Not just normal anger, but explosive anger, a raging anger that inflicts punishment. The difficulty comes when we try to impose this intense kind of anger on God. Is God sitting up in heaven, glaring down at people on earth, filled with rage? Many people have this exact image of God. They are certain that God cannot stand them and would squash them like a bug with righteous indignation. And they are rightly afraid of God. He's got a point, doesn't he? How do we reconcile this wrath with a God who longs to forgive and see us live into this abundant life described in later verses? James Bryant Smith continues, I do not believe that God's wrath is the same as human anger. 
We get angry when we don't get our way and we scowl and stew and take it out on someone or something. That is not the kind of anger that God expresses. God sets an order, a good order. And if we rebel from that order, we suffer. That is what the wrath of God is. Wrath is not God's disposition toward us. Wrath is God's arrangement regarding sin. We think of sin as something that is good for us, but that unfortunately makes God mad at us. We don't see sin as deadly. Yet sin is a rejection of God, and it naturally comes with some kind of consequence. God isn't in the punishment business on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis like divine karma. Sin is its own punishment. I don't think we have to walk this journey very long before we recognize there is some truth in what Smith says. Living in hiding. Fear that if people really knew us or knew the sin we struggle with, they would reject us. That is its own kind of punishment. Wanting a relationship with God, but feeling unworthy because of the weight of unconfessed sin is its own punishment. The sins that bind us keep us from freedom. They keep us from joy and often from even setting our hearts and minds on things above. Sin especially those sins that we hide from ourselves and others, keep us enslaved. But God invites us to a different kind of life. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of the creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The point to this list is not to find our one fault or shortcoming on the list and stop it. No, that might be good. After all, this is far from a complete list. There are other passages that mention gossip and eating or drinking too much and disobeying parents and on and on. In fact, James goes so far as to say, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We have all been there. See, if we're honest, if we are brave, the first step is recognizing what needs to be brought into the light. It is an openness to the Spirit's work of examination and illumination. It is Psalm 139.23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There must be a recognition that is greater than our fear that admits that walking in these ways is not walking in new life and keeps us from living 
as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. If I could rewrite the words of the song we just heard, it would be on the chorus, God, say what you want to say and let the words fall in honestly. I want to see and be brave. That's where we start. But just seeing, though a crucial step, isn't enough. When the Spirit reveals these things that hold us captive, we usually do a couple things. Some of us retreat into the prison of shame, clinging to our worthlessness like a badge of despair. This is often my first response. Henry Nouwen, in his book called Return of the Prodigal Son, talks about how the younger son in Jesus' parable eventually bottoms out. He sees clearly his situation, recognizes the mess he's made, and decides to return to his father and beg for a job as a hired man. He is face to face with his worthlessness. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he cries on his return home. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But there is a lack of understanding of the father's love and the status the father is wanting and waiting to give his son. Now and says, one of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness. There is something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sin and prevents us from letting God erase our past and offer us a completely new beginning. Sometimes it even seems as though I want to prove to God that my darkness is too great to overcome. There's another way, though, that others of us respond. We firmly hide, like the older son in the parable, in the claim that we are not that bad. We do our best to do the right thing, and that should be worth a lot. We compare. I never ran away and wasted your money and lived a life of debauchery. Or go back to the Colossians passage. At least I'm not a Gentile. I know and follow the way of God, the law of God. Or, I'm no barbarian. Do you know what they do in battle? Have you seen how they live? We present ourselves and maybe even convince ourselves that yes, we're not perfect, but we are doing the best we can. And then we jump to verse 12 and try our best, at least in front of others, to appear compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient and even forgiving. But deep down, we know we're living a lie. Now one says of the older son, outwardly he did all the things a good son is supposed to do, but inwardly he wandered away from his father. He did his duty, worked hard every day, fulfilled his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree. In both cases, we may at least have an idea of some of the sins that bind, but we haven't really experienced, put on, and lived in the forgiveness God not only offers, but has already secured at the cross. Maybe we acknowledge 
that we need it, but especially in those sins that hold us captive that we continue to struggle with, we keep stepping in and then stepping out of forgiveness. Shame is a heavy taskmaster, and there is a huge difference between acknowledging our sin and walking in forgiveness and freedom. David knew this so well. David, the man after God's own heart, the greatest king from whom the Savior would be called the son of David. David, the adulterer, the murderer. David knew sin. David knew denial. And David knew shame. And he pens in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David discovered firsthand what it means to put on the new self to embrace God's forgiveness and walk in it, and to find, like the prodigal son, that God not only forgives, but longs to give us the status and all the perks of being a child of the king. We cannot live as the beloved of God, made in his image and hidden in Christ, and cling to the old self, hiding in the shadows of either denial or shame. When we are mired in shame or work hard to appear altogether while knowing that's not the whole truth, we convince ourselves that no one, not God or anyone else, can ever really understand what it's like to be us, how deep is the struggle, how nothing is ever going to change. But that is not the truth. Let's go back to the song here, verse 2. Everybody's been there. Everybody's been stared down by the enemy, fallen for fear, and done some disappearing. Bow down to the mighty, but don't run. Stop holding your tongue. Maybe there's a way out of the cage where you live. Maybe one of these days you can let the light in. Show me how big is your, your brave is. Which brings me to my third point. A confession that changes us, that enables us to live as those made alive in Christ involves an openness to God's examination and illumination, a commitment to confession and a continual walking in God's forgiveness and love, a putting on of that new self and being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, and then... And this, for most of us, is the scariest step of all. It involves speaking the nature of our sin to another human being who we trust. I am convinced that there is a hold sin has on us when we never speak it aloud. 
I see this over and over again in our journey groups when in the process of telling their stories, people share sin and pain and shame. Sometimes they say things they've never told another person. And in the process, instead of finding the judgment and rejection they fear, they find acceptance, love, even a commonality that maybe they are not so different after all, and they are not alone in their struggle. James 5, 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why is it we can come to God with our confession and still feel enslaved? We believe maybe God can forgive us, at least that's what the Bible says, but we don't feel forgiven. Oh, that we could be the body of Christ to each other. If the church is not a place where these things can be brought to the light, where is? Let us be a place where there is no need for pretense to lie to each other in any way. Because this is a place where the words of 1 Thessalonians 5.11 are lived out. We encourage one another and build one another up. This is a place where we bear with each other and forgive one another. Where we speak words of absolution and forgive as the Lord forgave us. This is a place where regardless of the sins that have held us captive, we can be brave enough to speak them aloud and find a love that binds us all together in perfect unity. I know what some of you are thinking. This is not a Catholic church. We don't have to say it out loud to be forgiven. You're right. But then no one knows your struggle. No one can encourage you and remind you who you really are in Christ. No one can speak the words of absolution and freedom and new life we all long to hear and believe. Twelve-step programs, which have helped millions of people step into a life of recovery and hope, even after years of addiction, know this so well. And perhaps they can be our teacher here. In step four, a moral inventory is taken. In my words, it's that inward look of examination and illumination. It's seeing and owning our junk. And then comes step five, admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That's confession. It includes self-knowledge, it includes coming to God, and it includes speaking the truth of our sins that bind out loud to another person. Total honesty, total responsibility, brutal. But according to those who write about this step, for many it becomes the most important and the most freeing step of all. It is the step in the process when you turn from taking stock and owning the past, and you begin to build a new future, a new life. Speaking aloud to another person, they say, is key to starting a new journey. 
Now, please hear me. I am not saying we should tell everyone we meet our deepest and darkest sins. I've made some mistakes here. Authenticity is one of my highest values, and in an effort to be authentic, I have sometimes shared things with people who have used them to hurt instead of heal. In AA, you work with a sponsor or someone who is further down the road that you can trust. Traditionally, confession has involved a priest or spiritual director or pastor or a leader that can be trusted. Sometimes it involves a close, trusted friend. It should be someone who will listen in love, speak words of life, and ideally pray for you. So let's go back to where I started in Colossians 3, that living as those made alive in Christ, living in the reality of the kingdom. Living out everyday adventures in the kingdom involves risk. Embracing confession, both, going with, both ongoing with God and being brave enough to bring our struggles to the light with another person can be risky, can feel scary. And that's exactly why it matters so much. One writer described it this way. Going on an adventure, even an adventure of new life, is always a risk. That's why this feeling of terror is a good indicator that you're not in the bleachers anymore. I started exploring the importance of confession in our spiritual journey when I heard someone speak about major revivals throughout history. I learned that the start of almost all revivals was public confession. Think about that for a moment. The spirit is free to move, and change happens when confession, public confession, happens in a community. So what might being brave look like for you today? The last verse of the song, Brave, says, Innocence, your history of silence won't do you any good. Did you think it would? Let your words be anything but empty. Why don't you tell them the truth? Jordan is going to close us today with the song Greater Still. As we worship, I've asked a few trusted leaders from our church to scatter around the auditorium. Maybe today you're ready to take a risky step and be brave enough to go to them. You can tell them as much or as little as you feel comfortable, or just say, pray for me. They have a prayer they'd like to pray over you. Perhaps your brave means making an appointment with one of our pastors or seeking out a trusted friend and sharing your struggle, but bring it to the light. For some of you, being brave today could mean asking God to show you who around you is hurting, and then put a hand on their shoulder, speak a word of encouragement, or remind them of who they are in Christ. Be brave, knowing wherever you're at at the journey, the words of the song we will sing are true. My sin was deep. Your grace was deeper. 
My shame was wide, your arms were wider, and my guilt was great. Your love was greater still. Let's pray. God, you are love, perfect love that casts out all fear. We long to be a people open to your examination and illumination, a people that confesses our sin and is ever learning to walk in forgiveness, a people who can share with each other our sin and struggle and find encouragement and freedom. Help us be brave and grant us your pardon and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.